Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend, as we consider this passage of scripture, familiar to us, but so profound, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand. Truly, only you can communicate these things to us. So, Lord, I pray that as we reflect upon this passage, as we talk about it, think about it, hear about it, I pray that there would be more going on here than just human words, human thoughts. But, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would instruct us and teach us through the word that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand, Lord. Help us to see what we need to see. Help us not to resist the truth. Thank you that the truth sets us free and shows us your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So far in the Gospel of John, we've studied many firsts. We've looked already at the first disciples of Jesus. We've looked at the first miracle of Jesus. We've looked at the first impression that Jesus gave to Israel in chapter 2 when he cleansed the temple. And we come now to another first in the ministry of Jesus. And that is, we come to the first recorded lengthy discourse of Jesus. The first lengthy discourse that's recorded that Jesus gave. And this is, brothers and sisters, the, literally the first in any of the Gospels. So we've been introduced to Jesus. He's given us his first impression by cleansing the temple. And the first discourse or teaching that the, any of the apostles give us is this one in the Gospel of John. And if you notice the context, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover still. So this is 
This teaching happened at the same time that he went to Jerusalem and cleansed the temple at that time. And that Passover and this teaching at that Passover precedes any events of Jesus' ministry in the Synoptic Gospels. So John is giving us some details of an early stage in Jesus' ministry before any of the Synoptic Gospels start talking about Jesus' ministry. This is chronologically the first lengthy discourse that we have of Jesus. And so it has special importance since it's a first. Now, what would you expect the apostles to record if they were going to record Jesus' first major discourse or teaching? What would you expect it to be? I am the light of the world. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, we might think, well, if we went out on the street and just asked a stranger, you know, what do you think Jesus first recorded message was all about? They, they might say, I don't know, but if you had to guess, do you think they'd guess this? Although this teaching here that we've read is famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, and although it's very recognizable to us, I doubt most of us would have guessed this was Jesus' first major discourse that was recorded by the apostles. This teaching stuns us. It's meant to stun us. If we're not stunned by it, we're missing it. You must be born again. In other words, there's something rotten in the state of humanity. That's what the implication of this statement is. You must be born again. It's almost insulting, isn't it? Your first birth was not good enough. You know, we're all born. Yeah, you need to be born over You need to be born again. The first one was wrong. It was bad. It didn't work. It's not enough. Jesus is not simply saying that you need to adjust. You need to change. You know, you were born and somewhere along the road you got off track and so you need to trace back where you got off track and and make an adjustment. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to be born again, which means if you trace the problem of humanity, it's not that we went off the rails somewhere in our lives after we turned 16. The problem gets traced right back to our birth. You need to be born again, my friends. That's what Jesus is saying to this world. The problem is in our birth. What we are by birth is hopeless and unacceptable. And so there needs to be a new birth. Jesus' first lengthy teaching or discourse here is like his first impression, isn't it? In that his first impression was cleansing the temple. It was communicating and making a statement that something is seriously wrong with humanity, even at humanity's supposed best, right? Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the Passover. Israel, the Jews, worshiping the one God doing everything they're supposed to do or so they think, and he comes in angrily and cleans the whole place out, says, everything's wrong here, right? Mankind is seriously messed up, even religious mankind, even mankind and the people we'd point to as the best examples. We're messed up and we need divine intervention. This, is a, this can be insulting, it can sound like bad news, but brothers and sisters, 
it can also sound like good news to certain ears, right? This message, you must be born again, can sound to our ears, this is good news, I can be born again. Everything's messed up and wrong, but it can be realigned. Things can be put right through God. Even at that place of my birth. Now all of this is, that I've said is the implication of this statement, you must be born again, but I still haven't said anything about what it means to be born again. What does that mean, you must be born again? Now as Christians, we're all familiar with this, with this phrase, aren't we? You must be born again. In fact, probably most of us here would identify ourselves as born again Christians, but I seriously suspect that the concept of being born again is not well understood in the Christian church. I mean, just ask yourself right now, what does it mean really to be born again? You believe you're born again? You call yourself a born again Christian? What does it mean? And the interesting thing you'll find is if we went through even just our own congregation here and we asked each person, what does it mean to be born again? We probably wouldn't get one answer. We'd get multiple answers. Real Christians, evangelical Christians, are actually divided in their interpretation about what it means to be born again. There's two major interpretations on what this means. And so if you ask real Christians what it means, you'll probably hear two different things. And both camps will hold to their view very strongly. And so we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to ask what does it mean to be born again and look at these two different views. But ask yourself... Suppose you have an answer. I know what it means to be born again, Eli. It's this. Then my second question is, how do you know that's what it means to be born again? How do you know that? I mean, the text is kind of ambiguous here, isn't it? Jesus says you must be born again. He adds a few clarifying points, as we're going to see, but he doesn't really, at least obviously, explain it, right? And when you scour the New Testament, you'll find that there are few direct There are a few scriptures that directly address it. There are some. Another question to ask yourself is, have you been born again? Because if you haven't been born again, then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus puts an absolute requirement here for people to be saved. This is an important thing for us to understand. But how do you know if you've been born again? Obviously, you're going to need the answers to the other questions. What does it mean to be born again? And how do I know that's what it means? So it's to these questions we're going to turn this morning. And I'd like to ask you this morning to put on your thinking caps. This is one of those thinking cap sermons. That means it's probably going to be longer than I want it to be. And it will require us to really think hard about what is being said by Jesus and to be patient and obviously we're not going to be able to address everything we we need to in one sermon so we're going to look at three things as we look at this passage first of all the context of Jesus's teaching you must be born again secondly Jesus's clarification of what he means by you must be born again and then thirdly I'm going to tie things together in a conclusion and answer our questions what does it mean to be born again So first of all, the context of Jesus' teaching, you must be born again. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, brothers and sisters, that the Pharisees or the rulers in Israel were interested in Jesus at this point. I mean, he just cleansed the temple, and according to chapter 1, verse 23, Jesus was doing all sorts of signs as well at the Passover in Jerusalem. So clearly, the religious establishment is going to be interested in Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us that Nicodemus goes to Jesus, even though he's a Pharisee. Nor should it, at this stage, surprise us that the Pharisees are even friendly or amicable with Jesus. Notice Nicodemus' statement, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. There's no hostility here at this point, right? And that shouldn't surprise us. That's not a statement that Nicodemus is somehow, at this point, really any different than the rest of the Pharisees might have been. What is surprising as we read on in the Gospels is that this Pharisee, unlike the, uh, most of the other Pharisees, ends up believing in Jesus. And I think that's an amazing thing. We find Nicodemus believing in Jesus all throughout the Gospels. And even at the end, he is one of the men who comes and buries Jesus out of respect for him. So Nicodemus, at the end, wasn't among the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, which is really a Surprising and amazing thing. Nicodemus is therefore kind of like Paul. Both were Pharisees, and yet both became Christians. And yet, notice that their conversions are very different, right? Paul has a sudden dramatic conversion and transformation because Paul hates Jesus. He was in the crowd saying, crucify, crucify. But Jesus got a hold of him in a sudden way. Nicodemus, on the other hand, he became a Christian. He obviously was born again too. But notice they're two very different stories. One's more gradual. One is more imperceptible. One's more of like a lengthy process of him becoming a disciple than the other. Different paths, but they're both born again. I think we can learn a lesson here that being, becoming born again doesn't always look the same in every single person. The process of how that happens. There's endless speculation about Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. Have you ever heard people speculate on that? He came at night, meaning he came secretly. I don't think that's probably true. At this point, there wasn't yet the level of hostility against Jesus that Nicodemus would have had have come secretly. Another speculation is that it's symbolic of spiritual darkness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, which is simply a symbol that he's still in darkness. It probably just means he wanted some privacy with Jesus. Is it symbolic? Perhaps, but we don't need to be dogmatic about it. But the really important thing to understand when we're looking at the context of Jesus' teaching of you must be born again is what Nicodemus says to Jesus because what Jesus teaches about being born again is a response to what Nicodemus says. So it's really important that we look at verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, there's two things that we need to understand or notice about this saying, which will help us understand Jesus' teaching. First of all, what Nicodemus says here, and Jesus' teaching that is a response to this, are inseparably inseparably connected with what goes right before in chapter 1. And look at verse 23. 
Now, when, the, when, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. So we see there's a direct and definite connection between Nicodemus and what he's saying to Jesus and what has just happened in Jerusalem. That is, Nicodemus is an example of one who, seeing Jesus' work, believed in him. We know you're a teacher. We know you're from God. No one can do these things, these signs, unless God were with him. So this is very important in the context. And look at verse 24 and 25. But Jesus on his part, chapter 1, 24 and 25. Chapter, two. Uh, chapter 1, 24. John chapter 1. Oh, excuse me, you're right. John chapter 2. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> It's hard to keep all your thoughts together when you're up here. Okay, John chapter 2, verse 24. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Okay, so this seems good in verse 23. People are believing on him when they're seeing the signs. Great. No, not great. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. Doesn't, as we talked about uh, two weeks ago, he isn't impressed by their faith because he knows how many men all. See, Jesus knows something about everybody. It's not just he knows something about those guys, right? I know something about that group that's believing in me. No, he knows everybody. He knows all men. Verse 25, he doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man. Of course, he is God who knows all men, for he himself knew what was in man. And so we see there's a direct connection between verse 23, 24, and 25, Nicodemus' statement, who he is an example of someone who believed in Jesus based upon the signs, and Jesus' teaching is a reflection upon verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2. Jesus' statement, you must be born again, is responding to or reflecting upon the fact that he knows all men, he knows what's in us all. Do you see that connection? Because he knows us, as human beings, and because he knows what's inside here, he therefore says, unless a man is born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So let's bear this in mind as we consider his teaching. The second thing to see about, about Nicodemus's statement here is that Jesus' reply responds to it and is actually a play on words to it or he's playing off of it. For notice that what Nicodemus says is similar to what Jesus says, or vice versa. What Jesus says is similar to what Nicodemus says. Nicodemus makes a negative universal claim about humanity. He says, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So Nicodemus makes this universal claim. People just can't do signs like this unless they're from God or of God. And Jesus responds with his own negative universal claim. Verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, negative claim, see the kingdom of God. Or in other words, no one can see the kingdom of God unless God is with him, for him, uh, with him, from him, unless that person is of God, from God. So there's a play on words. Nicodemus, you've got to go a little bit deeper. 
Yeah, no one can do signs unless God is with them. Guess what? No one can enter the kingdom of God unless God is with them. Jesus answers him suddenly. He alters the course of the conversation. He cuts right to the chase, gets to the heart of the matter. See, what Nicodemus is doing in verse 2 is, in a way, is commending himself to Jesus. He's saying, Rabbi, I want you to know that I know that you're from God. I want you to know that there's some good in me. I want you to know that I'm recognizing you. Right? Applause. Give me accolades, Jesus. Uh, Pat me on the back and say, you're right. But Jesus isn't impressed. He doesn't entrust himself to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, what you say is true as far as it goes. Yes, I am a teacher from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. But in reality, your recognition of me falls woefully short. And here we have an example of something we continue to see to the present day. There are many people who say Jesus is a good teacher from God, right? Many people even say, Jesus, the first century teacher who was crucified, all that, he is from God. He's a teacher. That's true as far as it goes. But one can say that about Jesus. One can even believe that about Jesus and fall woefully short in their understanding of who Jesus is. You say that I am a good teacher from God. Do you accept what I teach? That's a more important question right? On campus, I hear it all the time. I think Jesus is a really good teacher, but I know they don't even know what Jesus taught. (laughs) Or if I were to elucidate his teaching, they'd say, no way. So there's a disconnect between their faith in him and their faith in him, their real faith in him, right? Are they really believing in him? Jesus here offers his first major teaching. You're rotten. Humanity is rotten from birth. That's where, the, that's where the problem stems from. And you must be born again in order to inherit the kingdom of God. You think I'm a teacher from God? Okay, here's my teaching. <laughs> what do you think, Nicodemus? <laughs> what do you think, friends? What do you think, world, about Jesus' teaching? What will we do with this? F.F. Bruce comments that Jesus' answer was carefully calculated to speak to his condition, Nicodemus. See, Jesus is not teaching this to some profligate, right? He's not teaching this to some irreligious person who spends all of his time just waking up in the morning seeking his next drink and thrill. He's speaking this to a highly religious man, respected in his community, even a man who accepts Jesus as a teacher. Basically, Jesus is speaking this teaching to the best of the best. You must be born again. If Nicodemus needed to learn this lesson, that he needed to be born again, how much more do we all? Jesus says in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, some people read that verse and they think uh, what Jesus means by he cannot see the kingdom of God is that he can't even look at it or understand it, right? Have you ever heard that before? But really, what Jesus means by seeing the kingdom of God is just the, the equivalent of saying he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And when Jesus repeats himself in verse 5, he says that he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or you'll remember 
other places, actually in this same chapter, verse 36 of the same chapter, John the Baptist says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son or believe or hear the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So we don't need to press into this word see, the idea of cognitive understanding. Just understand Jesus is saying you won't enter the kingdom. You won't be there unless you are born again. Nicodemus taught about the kingdom of God as, as a teacher in Israel, and he even taught what was required to enter the kingdom of God, right? What would Nicodemus have taught? Unless a man blank, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What, what would have Nicodemus put in those blanks? Well, he would have said, unless a man is righteous, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, and that's true. Unless a man... Of course, how do you get righteous? How are you righteous, Nicodemus? You are righteous by repenting of your sins, being circumcised, and keeping the, keeping the commandments of the law. So he's right in saying you have to be righteous to get into the kingdom of God, but he would say righteousness comes through personal obedience to God's word, to God's law, to God's commandments. But Nicodemus clearly did not teach you must be born again. This was something that was new to him, and not only new, but shocking and confusing. So obviously, whatever Jesus means by being born again isn't something that Nicodemus was previously teaching or understanding. Being born again cannot simply mean, unless a man is righteous, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It has to be more than that. Even though you have to be righteous to get into the kingdom, Jesus taught that. That's true. Nor is it just this vague, unless a man is changed, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus could agree with that. Yeah, you've got to change. You've got to change from being unrighteous to righteous. You've got to change from being bad to good. Not even, unless a man becomes like a child, he can't inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus' words can't simply mean that. In fact, in Judaism, they have this idea that when you convert to Judaism, get circumcised, turn from your sins, keep the commandments, it's like you become a child again. But what they mean is you're turning a new leaf. You were born fine, but you went wrong, and now you need, to be, you need to adjust where you went wrong. Jesus is not saying something Nicodemus already understood. Look at verse 4. Here's Nicodemus' response. How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? My question to Nicodemus is, how can you be so crassly literal, right? Do you really think that's what Jesus was meaning? Crawling back into your mother? No. And I don't think Nicodemus thought that's what Jesus meant either. I don't think Nicodemus was sincerely asking, are you saying that we have to crawl back inside of our mother's wombs? In a sense, he's mocking Jesus here a little bit, right? He's Really what he's doing is he's reacting to what Jesus has said. He's reacting to this idea. He clearly doesn't understand what Jesus says, but he's picking up something pretty radical that you need to have a new birth, right? It has to start fresh from the beginning, all over. It's not an adjustment. It's some, something's totally wrong with you. But he, he's pushing back against it. No, that, I'm reacting to this. And he uses this crass, literal response to sort of show his disgust with what Jesus is saying. And so we see his initial faith wasn't really all it was cracked up to be, right? I know you're a teacher, but then he's kind of, I don't like what you're saying. 
It's encouraging to know he became a Christian later, isn't it? This guy. So that's the context of this teaching, when Jesus says you must be born again. The context is chapter 1, 23, 24, and 25. Chapter 2, thank you, honey. <laughs> chapter 2, 23, 24, and 25. And this man, Nicodemus, who ex- exemplifies these people who are believing in him. Secondly, Jesus clarifies what he means by being born again. Now, this is verse 5 to 8. 5, 6, 7, and 8. Jesus now repeats himself and explains himself so that he can be understood. He puts, this, he puts what he's saying in a new way to help Nicodemus understand. Now, did you notice that from verse 5 through 8, the main point Jesus is saying here is that what he means by being born again is being born of the Spirit. Right? That's the whole basic point in 5 through 8. Let's just look at that again. Notice this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So he, he rephrases it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the essential clarifying point here is, when I say born again, I don't mean crawling back into your mother's womb, okay? I mean being born of God's Spirit. In other words, it's not just about how you need to be born again a second time, but you need to be born from a different source altogether. You see? So he's not just saying you need another birth. Redo the old birth again, right? But this second birth that you need has to come from an entirely different source than the first one. It's totally different. It's a second birth, but it's different because it's got a different father, a different begetting. In verse 6, he contrasts the two births. The first birth that we've all experienced is from the flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and the second birth is from the spirit. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And here he contrasts flesh and spirit, which is a major, major theme in the Bible. And we can't go into it this morning. I've talked a lot about it already. I can point you to other sermons. But this is a major theme in the Bible, flesh and spirit. And here it is in Jesus' first lengthy discourse. So that should clue us in. Wow, this is a really important theme. Verse 6 reminds us of the nature of things In the book of Genesis, God says that each will give birth after their kind, right? So, birds will give birth to birds. Fish will give birth to fish. Cattle will give birth to cattle. Everything will give birth after its kind. And here he says, flesh will give birth to flesh. Spirit will give birth to spirit. We've all been born of the flesh. We all need to be born of the spirit. We need a new kind of birth altogether. Or in other words, the being born again means going from being fleshly to being spiritual. That's what being born again is all about. You need to become a spiritual man and not a fleshly man or woman. 
In verse 8, Jesus draws a comparison with the wind and being born again. Basically what Jesus is saying in verse 8 is when it comes to the wind, you see the effects of the wind, but you don't predict where it's coming from or where it's going. It's, you see where it is by its effects, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. It's not something that you can control. Now, it's, Jesus is not saying that scientists can't explain something about the wind. In fact, that's what meteorology is really all about. Meteorologists are able to explain something about the wind, right? But even in modern-day meteorology, they still can't predict the wind, where it comes from and where it's going, because the causes that go into the wind, you know, recently we had this on the news, what was it, Hurricane Patricia, was it? Coming, coming to the Mexican uh, southwestern coast. That thing was the biggest hurricane they'd ever seen. Kind of came out of nowhere. You think if they could predict it in advance, they'd say, you know, in about three weeks, there's going to be this enormous hurricane that's going to come, everybody evacuate. It's really suddenly upon them. Okay, get out of there, right? And then suddenly it dissipated. They didn't know. So we know there's causes. It's not that this is a causeless thing, but there's so many and they're so minute and they're so distant from the actual event of the wind that human beings can only predict it with minor accuracy and close to the event, right? We, we can kind of see it happening and then we say, okay, we got about two days or one day or five hours. And it's the same with being born again. It's not that there are no causes to us being born again. There are reasons that we're born again, but they are beyond our understanding. We can't predict it. Donald Guthrie comments, the miracle of the new birth cannot be arranged by human ingenuity. Its operation is beyond human control. I believe that's the essence of verse 8. Whoever heard of someone deciding or affecting their own birth? Have you? You must be born again. It doesn't sound like something you can manipulate, does it? And we see this by experience all the time. We cannot, as human beings, change from flesh to spirit or ensure that our children will be spirit when they're born, right? Every single person needs to be born again of the spirit. Christian parents cannot beget Christian children. They can't beget regenerate children. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. If they're going to be born again, it has to be from God. So I've said verse 5 through 8 is all about Jesus clarifying what he means. It means being born of the Spirit. There's one final puzzling point, though, we have to address in his clarification. Look at verse 5 with me. Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does this mean, water and the Spirit? What do you think that means? There are three common views. There's a lot of views on this, but there are three common views. Number one, And this is the least common of the three common views. Some people think the water that Jesus is referring to is the amniotic fluid that that is involved in the first birth. So when Jesus says, you must be born of water and the Spirit, he's saying, you must be born of water, that's the first birth, and of the Spirit, that's the second birth. Water is that amniotic fluid we grew up in, we, we were formed in, and then 
when we were born, we were born in, and you get the idea. <laughs> it's true, I've seen it. <laughs> um, so this view, dis- the word and in this view, it distinguishes water and spirit. You must be born of water and spirit, two births. The problem with this view is that nowhere else in the Bible or really in even ancient literature is a natural birth ever spoken of as being born of water. It's not a common way of speaking about being born. And furthermore, the the Greek construction of that phrase doesn't separate water and spirit. It's not, the Greek doesn't distinguish between water is one thing, spirit is another, but it actually puts it together. Water and spirit are really talking about the same thing in the Greek. So for that reason, most commentator scholars think that's an inappropriate interpretation. Do you know what the most common interpretation of this is, water and spirit? The most common interpretation of water and spirit is that Jesus is referring to water baptism. Have you heard that before? And I say it's most common because of those who are reading the Bible and thinking about it, uh, those who believe that this is referring to water baptism are the Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and other churches that are sort of in that high liturgical sacramental strain. Also, in our own environment, Mormons believe that this verse refers to baptism. So what Jesus is saying is, basically, unless you're baptized, you can't be saved, and being baptized is what it means to be born again. You've probably heard this before. Now, what is the basis of this view? Why do they think baptism is what Jesus is talking about here? And it really is very simple to understand, brothers and sisters. The basis for thinking baptism is what he's talking about here is because he uses the word water. That's it. So basically, the idea is, when you encounter the word water, think baptism. He says water, baptism. There's, it's really not more sophisticated than that. It's just assumed water always or usually equals baptism. Now, there are several problems with this view. First of all, water does not always refer to baptism. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 10, you'll remember Jesus has a discussion about water with a woman at a well, right? And he says, I'll give you living water. If you knew who was asking you, you would ask him for living water. And we understand in this passage that what Jesus is talking about is the Holy Spirit. For in chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus also refers to living water. He says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And Whoever believes in me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And the comment on this is that by this he was referring to the Spirit. And so water does not always refer to baptism. It actually, in the Gospel of John, refers to the Spirit. Secondly, here's another problem with this view. If baptismal regeneration was really in view, then you'd think it would be mentioned elsewhere in the Gospel of John or in John's writings, or in the New Testament somewhere, and it's simply not. So, 
if being baptized to be born again was really what it was all about, where else is that? And we have a hard time finding it anywhere else in the New Testament. What we do find in the Gospel of John, actually, is water baptism being downplayed. Have you noticed that? So John the Baptist is always saying, I baptize with water. That's kind of a symbol. But he's going to do the real baptism, right? It will be the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So he contrasts what Jesus is going to do with his water baptism. I baptize with water. Yeah, that's great. But you know what he's going to do? Something more than water. Something greater. The baptism in the Holy Spirit. In fact, we also see it downplayed in that Jesus didn't baptize anybody. And John tells us that. Jesus wasn't baptizing anybody. And when he heard that people were thinking that his disciples were baptizing more than John, then they got out of there, right? So there's sort of a, a downplaying of water baptism in the Gospel of John anyway. What's really important in the Gospel of John, though, is the Holy Spirit. And one final problem with this, how does that view fit with verse 8? The wind blows where it wills. You see its effects, but you don't know how it got there, where it came from, and where it's going. If regeneration, if we want to call it, or being born again, same thing, was really something that we could control by baptism, then I'm not sure how Jesus' words about it being a spiritual thing that is out of our control really makes any sense. So the third common view is the, is the view that I hold and the majority of evangelical Christians hold and scholars hold. And that is that water and spirit here are a conceptual unity. That means it's really talking, Jesus is just talking about one thing, being born of the spirit. And he uses the word water here to bring out an aspect of the Holy Spirit or an aspect of the spirit. Water and spirit are one thing, the spirit. Water is another way of referring to the Spirit, but to bring out its cleansing aspect to our mind. Now, there's a basis for this. First of all, as I said, the Greek joins them into one. So that's one basis for this. But have you noticed that the Spirit spirit is often uh, spoken of or described with an entity like water? I've got a soundtrack now. Um, have you noticed in the Bible that the Spirit, it's not unusual for the Spirit to be described with an entity like water. Let me give you another example. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You remember this? So the Holy Spirit and fire, fire and the Spirit are one conceptual unity, but fire is bringing out some aspect of the Spirit to our mind, right? Or in in the Bible, the Spirit is often said to be poured out. Being poured out is like being poured out uh, as water. So it's not unusual for the Spirit to be spoken of as an entity like water or like fire. And as I've mentioned, water in the Gospel of John is said to be the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament prophets predicted a time when Israel as a nation would be transformed by God pouring out his spirit upon them. You remember these prophecies? There's many. So the prophets say, Israel, you're rebellious, you're sinful, you're wayward, you're dirty, you're 
full of iniquity, full of idolatry. But one day I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you and you will be clean from all of your filthiness, from all of your idolatry. I'll pour out my spirit upon you. I'll put a new heart within you. I'll put a new spirit within you and you will walk in my way. It's a common prophecy in the Old Testament. Evangelical scholars will point to those prophecies in the Old Testament that refer to the Spirit being poured out, cleansing those people, giving them a new heart. And they'll say, this is what Jesus is talking about here when he says, you must be born of water in the Spirit. He's referring to the Old Testament and those images of the Spirit as water washing those people clean. Or think of the New Testament, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul writes that, we're saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. He puts those two things together again, doesn't he? So the summary, the sum of what Jesus is saying in his clarification is this. Nicodemus and the world. No one can enter the kingdom of God or be saved unless they are born again of the cleansing spirit of God. And so here's our, we come to our conclusion this morning. I'd like to tie it together and answer the original questions that we were asking at the beginning. What does it mean to be born again? Now, as I've said, Christians are divided between two major interpretations on what exactly it means to be born again. And both camps hold their view very strongly. Okay, I I told you this was going to be a thinking cap sermon. So we're, we're, we're coming to the end, but you're still with me. Here's the first view. Many Christians believe being born again is what follows faith. It's what follows faith. That is, you believe in Jesus. You believe the truth. And in consequence of believing, you are born again or regenerated. In consequence of believing, the cleansing spirit of God does its work and you are made new. No one is fit for the kingdom of God. No one can enter the kingdom of God for we're all sinful, unrighteous, and corrupt. But through faith in Christ, we are made new creations. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. We are made spiritual through faith in Jesus. And so when somebody believes in Jesus, we rejoice and we say, they believed And therefore, by believing, they were born again. Praise God, they were just born again when they believed. Does that make sense, that perspective? So one major camp is being born again is what follows faith. How do you get born again? You believe, and then God does a transforming, regenerating work in your life when you believe. Now, there are some very impressive scriptures that support this view. And turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 18. James chapter 1, verse 18. These are the verses that will be pointed to to support this perspective. James chapter 1, verse 18. James writes, In the exercise of his will... He brought us forth. The idea here is being born again. Brought forth. By the word of truth. So that we would be a kind of first fruits 
among his creatures. So the idea here is you're born again by the word of truth. So the word of the gospel is involved in us being born again. God causes us to be born again by the truth of the gospel. When the gospel comes to us and we believe, then we're born again. And God does it that way. Turn with me to 1 Peter, and here's even an even clearer passage. 1 Peter. <clears throat> Saying the same thing, but even more clearly. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's interesting how here Peter connects the resurrection of Jesus and our hope with being born again. What does he mean? Well, let's jump ahead in the chapter to verse 20. I think Peter explains himself a little bit more here. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He's saying here, Jesus came, he died, he rose, and he did all that so that our faith and hope would be in God. Verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth, that is by believing the truth, purified your souls unto a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from a pure heart or from the heart. Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God, For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Okay, so the idea here is Jesus died and rose again. The message of the gospel is preached to you and it's through this preached word by believing in it that you're born again. Does that make sense? So, This supports the idea that regeneration follows faith. When you believe, then you're born again. Now, if you think that seals the deal or closes the case, let's look at the second perspective. Now, the second view that many Christians hold, both camps are real Christians, is the opposite, actually. And it's this, that being born again is what precedes faith. It precedes faith. That is, you are first born again. And in consequence of being born again, you believe. Why do you believe? Because I was born again. The idea here is that humans are not only unfit to enter the kingdom of God because they're sinful and unrighteous by their behavior. Human beings are not only unfit to enter the kingdom of God, but they're too stubborn and rebellious to listen and believe in Jesus Christ, the one who can make them fit to enter the kingdom of God. So this other view looks at human beings and their 
depravity and their sinfulness from a deeper perspective. Not only are they just simply unfit, but they're, they're stubborn. They won't listen. They won't believe. Being born of the Spirit of God is a work of the Spirit that happens inside a person's heart. A cleansing work that removes the hardness of heart, the unclean spirits, the idolatry, and makes us spiritual. Makes us spiritual. And because of that inward cleansing work that makes us spiritual, we are enabled to respond to the word of the gospel and to the message of Jesus. We are enabled to believe. And then, of course, by believing, we are justified, made righteous, forgiven of all our sins, and fit for the kingdom of heaven. Make sense? (laughs) So which is it? No. (laughs) Um, uh, When someone believes, therefore they rejoice. They were born again, but their meaning is... Not they were just then born again when they believed, but they believed that were therefore they were born again. That that was what preceded their faith. This is a wonderful thing. God brought them forth to faith. There is also some impressive scriptures to back up this view, brothers and sisters. Let's turn back to the Gospel of John. One of the strengths of this view is that it can stay right in the Gospel of John. And turn with me to John chapter 3 again. John chapter 3. You'll remember the context of Jesus' teaching of being born again is kind of this thing, isn't it? That you've got people who believe in Jesus, but they don't really believe in Jesus. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows everybody and he knows what's inside of us. In response to that fact of what's in us, he says we need to be born again, right? And look at verse 19 of chapter 3. The Gospel of John gives many universal claims. Kind of like you must be born again. Everybody must be born again. or you can't, Unless you're born again, you won't inherit the kingdom. Many universal claims. And they're probably all connected. In verse 19, Jesus says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and who loved darkness more than light? Men. Universal claim. Not some men. Men. You see this? So Jesus doesn't entrust himself to men because he knows all men. Light comes into the world, and men, universal claim, loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But the surprising thing is as we read on, Usually when the Gospel of John says these universal claims like men don't believe, almost immediately it says, but those who do believe, right? So it's not saying that nobody believes, but it is saying that men don't believe. It's interesting, isn't it? Let's stay in the same chapter, verse 27. Another universal claim. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. That's a common teaching in the Bible. You cannot have anything unless it's granted from God. And that's a universal claim of all men. Verse 32 in the same chapter, John the Baptist says, what Jesus has seen and heard, of that he testifies. That kind of sounds like his conversation with Nicodemus just a moment ago. Who doesn't receive his testimony? 
Who doesn't receive his testimony? Nobody. Now we can take this on face value and it says, nobody receives this testimony. But look at the next verse. He who has received his testimony is set to a seal God is true. So wait, no, there are people who receive his testimony. So which is it? Does nobody receive his testimony? Or do some people? The answer in the Bible is yes. Some people do receive his testimony, but not men. No man receives his testimony. There's got to be something more here than just what man can do. Two more, two more scriptures. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. There's two passages in John 6 we could go to. They essentially say the same thing. We'll just go to verse 41. In both passages, the people are hearing Jesus teach about himself and they're grumbling. And these are actually not just people, these are disciples of Jesus. So these are people that are following him around, thinking he's a good teacher. But when he starts teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, man, they start to grumble. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of heaven that came, the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. Here's a universal claim. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. That is, all those who believe in him. They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Let's look at the, next, the other one. Verse 60 of chapter 6. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that, he, that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, universal claim, no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. So brothers and sisters, those are the two views. What do you think, personally? Think about it for yourself. Which do you choose? Well, I'd like to relieve us a little bit this morning. It's important to realize that when there is a major interpretive division among real Christians, it is probable very likely, and I think in this case, that both camps are seeing something that's true, okay? When there's a major division like this among real Christians, both camps are seeing something true. And so here's my answer this morning. You can think about it, talk to me about it. What does it mean to be born again? I believe that both of these views are right in what they're pointing to and that the entire package The whole thing is what it means to be born again.
Now, the second view is right in that God must work in our hearts and take away that human, no man can believe thing by his Holy Spirit in order for us to respond to Jesus Christ and not grumble, in order for us to not stumble at the foolishness of the preaching. God has to do that. And I believe the second view is correct in pointing that out. And the first view is correct in saying that when we believe in Christ, we are cleansed by the Holy Spirit and made the children of God, made new creations, made righteous and fit for the kingdom of heaven. And I actually would say that the first view is correct in identifying faith as that which causes us to be born again. So I'm gonna, my personal view is that when we believe, we are just then born again, when we believe. The first view emphasizes the event of being born a second time or being born again. And the second view emphasizes the source of that birth, which is of the Spirit. When are you born again? When you believe. But you believe because you were conceived by the Holy Spirit to believe. You were made fertile by the Holy Spirit to believe. There's two parts to what Jesus is saying. You must be born, that's an event, of the Spirit. That's the source. There's two parts to this, right? And that's the key to understanding this, I believe. God does the work inside our hearts to make us have a good heart and to make us fertile ground to receive the word of the gospel. And when we believe that word, we are then birthed anew as the children of God and as new creations. I believe it's when a person believes in Christ that the angels in heaven rejoice. Doesn't it say that? That the angels that rejoice when one sinner repents. That is, when he turns. When the actual birth takes place and we can all publicly rejoice together and say they believe they were birthed at that moment and we rejoice. But we should always understand that they were birthed because prior to that they were conceived of by the Holy Spirit. So how do you know if you're born again? I think all Christians agree on the answer, no matter what camp you're in. You know you're born again when you believe. Simply ask yourself, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe the truth that you're unrighteous, that humanity's messed up to the core, that there's no hope for humanity in our own efforts and in our own works and our own endeavors Do you believe that God loves this world and sent his son into the world to die on the cross for our sins, to provide the righteousness that we could not work for and earn? Do you hope in that, as Peter said, is your faith and hope in God and what he has done, not in what you do? And if you do believe that, then all Christians would say, yes, you've been born again. Maybe your experience is one like Paul, this dramatic event you can pinpoint the date and say, I was born again on this day. That's the day when I turned from darkness to light and I believed and I became a new creation. Praise God, brothers, if that's what happened to you. Maybe your experience is more like Nicodemus and somewhere along the road you, you were born again almost imperceptibly, imperceptibly. But yet, the important thing is that he came to faith. If you don't know the date that you were born again, it's not important. What is important is that you believe. 
That's the important thing. True Christianity is always born-again Christianity. What do I mean by that? True Christianity is always born-again Christianity. I mean this, that salvation is not a process, but it is an event. And the reason why salvation is not a lifelong process of trying to be born again all throughout your whole life or trying to be righteous or trying to be a new creation all throughout your whole life is because salvation depends upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. It depends upon an event when Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and what he did was efficacious to save us and once a person believes in that, they're changed and they're saved. And you can say, I was saved. I was forgiven. I was made righteous. I was made new when I believed. Whenever that was. Maybe I don't remember when it was, but it was an event. I was born again. And you'll find that in these religions that don't believe, these, any religion, whether it call itself Christian, that, that does not believe in the finished work of Christ and faith alone in that, you'll notice that salvation for them is always this long, drawn-out process, and you can never say that you, you are saved, right? You can never say, I've been saved, I've been born again. It's a done deal. Because it's based on what you do, not upon what Christ does. This is the first lengthy teaching of Jesus, and my lengthy teaching on it. (laughs) Humans are messed up. This is an insult to the world, but it is a word of hope for those who have ears to hear and who understand that you yourself are messed up. This is good news. Wow, I can be born again. I can be a new creation through the work of God. That's good news when you've got no hope in yourself. That's good news. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's give thanks to God for his spirit that has granted it unto us, brothers and sisters, to see these things and to understand these things. The the world, the majority of the world doesn't understand these things and they reject them. They're insulted by it. Let us give thanks to God's spirit for showing us the way of salvation through Jesus. And let's praise God and thank Jesus for the gift of his son, the flesh and the blood of his son that was shed for the sins of the world, that we could be made righteous through faith in him alone. Please stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that the truth of the gospel is hostile and contrary to the wisdom of the world. Lord, thank you for speaking the truth to this world and telling things like they are, not playing along with our games. Father, I pray for those here this morning who have not yet been born again, who have not understood the gospel and have not believed it and who have rejected it. And I pray, Lord, that they would consider this morning that they cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless they become a new creation through faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray you would reveal that to them this morning, open up their heart, and put the word inside that they might believe and be saved. Thank you so much 
for loving sinners. And Lord, all of our faith and hope is in you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.